I'm going to pray, uh, but I want to tell you, we're going to be in Isaiah 65 tonight. Isaiah 65, and I think it's especially important to have our Bibles open as we learn God's words tonight. So just want to encourage you to open those apps, open those pages, and uh, we're going to uh, hear from the Lord tonight. So let me pray, and then uh, we will get, uh, we're going to get into this poem and learn from God. So let me pray. Our Father in heaven, you are big. And you love us, you are sovereign, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake, amen. Have you ever wondered or asked yourself what is going on in the world? Probably quite a few. I feel like over the last five years, I've heard so many people say that they've stopped watching the news, and there's always a variety of reasons for this, but the longest standing reason that I'm aware of is it's because the news is just too depressing. And I think they're right. If you watch the news or listen to the news or read the news, it's often quite depressing. Just this week, there was a mass shooting in a a Serbian school, and it took the lives of eight students and one adult. In Sudan... Warring and, fact- or warring and fighting between political factions, it uh, intensified, and it brought the death toll to over 500 people. In a region that is already unstable, where thousands of people die every year from food scarcity, things are getting worse. Just last weekend in Chicago, 27 people were shot in one weekend, and that's a, a low number compared to some. And in the last five days, 20 churches were burned to the ground, six Christians martyred in northeastern India because of a growing Hindu nationalism that is growing in that area. The news is depressing very often, and it makes us probably ask all from time to time, what is going on in the world? It seems like everywhere we look, there's beastly violence and injustice and oppression everywhere. One kingdom rises and it sends out crusaders to wipe out an entire people group over religious differences. Another kingdom arises and wipes out millions in something called the Holocaust. Another nation rises and drops bombs, powerful bombs on a couple cities that annihilate man, woman, and child without discretion. And I wonder how you answer this question, how I answer this question, or how do we reckon all of this with something that Jesus said? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. How do we square this with what Jesus taught all over Israel, that people should believe the gospel, that the reign of God has arrived here on earth? How do we reconcile this with what scripture clearly teaches, that we serve an all-powerful and all-good God? You know, I think from our perspective, the perspective we are able to have as limited creatures From our perspective, we can look out into the world and it may lead us or others to say, is there a God? And if there is a God, is he all good and is he all powerful? It led some people in Israel's day to say that God can't do anything about the reign of evil, oppression, or violence in the world. And friends, what we really need is a new perspective. Well, we need our God's eyes. We need God's perspective. We need a revelation if we're going to be able to see behind the curtain and have any hope in discerning or understanding what God is doing right now. And since God is determined to redeem for himself a people to partner with in ruling the world, 
we as God's people need faith eyes. We need to see reality as it really is. We need God's perspective, and that's what the book of Isaiah, that's what our passage does tonight. Tonight's passage gives us eyes to see what is really going on, new eyes, a new perspective, faith eyes. And with these eyes, we are reminded that God is sovereign over eternity. God is sovereign over eternity. Let me read our poem uh, tonight, Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord." Let's familiarize ourselves with some context from the book of Isaiah to be faithful interpreters of this poetic word from God. So we're in the second to last chapter of the whole Isaiah scroll, and so literally, things are wrapping up. And since chapter 40, the focus has been on life after exile. Before this, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah focus on judgment upon Jerusalem because of her injustice, her idolatry, and her self-exaltation. Their rebellion against God has made them just another kingly, a beastly kingdom in the world, and God tells them what he does to beastly kingdoms. He brings them down. Israel is no exception. But interspersed among the announcements of judgment on Israel and the nations, we get little glimmers of hope. Isaiah speaks of a new Jerusalem which will bring justice and peace to all nations. And this new reality is going to come through a holy seed of Israel, a new branch in the line of David named Emmanuel, God with us. And throughout the prophetic poems, Isaiah shows that when kingdoms like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Israel exalt themselves through violence and oppression, God will turn evil in on itself to destroy it. But when kings and kingdoms humble themselves, trusting in God, he fights for them, he exalts them, and they become a blessing. But it seems that there's no exception that every kingdom becomes an earthly kingdom, forgets about her God, fights against others, rules by their own wisdom, and becomes savage beasts in the world. Israel, too, 
And Isaiah writes all of this as a warning against Israel. But just like normal, they don't heed the warning. Babylon comes, Jerusalem is destroyed, and her people are carried into exile. It's the same old story of rebellion that characterizes humanity and Israel all throughout the biblical story. It's almost as if we need something new. Almost as if we need a new Jerusalem, a new people, a renewed everything. And so in chapter 40, the the shift changes to life after exile. Isaiah offers comfort and hope. The people will return home. God's kingdom will come. Exile will be over. But like a broken record, the same old tune plays again. Israel doesn't trust her God. They question his sovereignty and continue to pursue their own self-destruction. And so God announces he's doing something new. He announces that he's going to do a brand new thing. And these are the chapters we're probably all very familiar with about the suffering servant. Instead of Israel being the servant of God that they were called to be, a new servant steps onto the scene. And God announces to him, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. This new servant He's going to call old Israel back. This new servant, he's going to be a light to the nations. This new servant is going to accomplish it all by being the suffering servant. Dying as a sacrifice for sin, but Isaiah reveals he will live again. After being cut off from the land of the living, his days will be extended and he will live again. The new suffering servant is going to be God's servant and everyone who responds to him in humility and repentance will become the new servants of God. They will, through the suffering servant, inherit a new creation, a new kingdom, a new Jerusalem. They'll be a brand new people. Now that might sound like a lot of context to give, But I share that because it's crucial for us to understand our poem tonight. Our passage is all about these new servants that I just spoke about. Those who have been made the servants of God by the suffering servant. These are those who are inheriting a new creation, a new city, as a new humanity. Nothing less than the Garden of Eden restored all through Messiah. That's what God says in our passage tonight. In our poem, God says, but for my servants, I create new creation, a new city as a new humanity, Eden restored all through Messiah. Our passage is a contrast passage. It contrasts the section immediately before it where God says this, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants rejoice, but you will be put to shame. God promises that he's going to destroy the wicked, deaf rebels of the world, but for my people, in contrast, I'm doing something brand new. And so to remind ourselves of this contrast, tonight we need to insert this little phrase, but for my servants, as we begin our poem. Here's the first part of our poem tonight. But for my servants, I create new creation. The wicked I will destroy, but for my servants, I create new creation creation. Verse 17 through the first part of 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Now before anyone jumps to the end of the Bible or some distant future, notice what God actually says here. He says, I create 
new heavens and a new earth. This is how the ESV translate it, and they get it right. Other translations say, I will create future tense, but in the original language, the ESV is closer. It might even be closer yet to translate it as, but for my servants, behold, I am creating new heavens and new earth. You see, for the servants of God, made so by the suffering servant, God is at work in their midst. He's doing something radically new. Now, don't hear me wrong. From Isaiah's perspective, this is in the future. But it's as if the original audience of this scroll are transported to that future, to this future time of the Messiah and his servants. And now, in age of Messiah, God is creating new heavens and new earth. And this new thing that God is doing is so radically new that it's described as a new creation. It's like the old, but new. I think it's kind of like Apple's annual commercials for the new iPhone. You know, it says, get the all-new iPhone today. It has a new camera, bigger screen, faster processor. There's not one part of it that's not renewed, refreshed, or upgraded. And yet, it's still an iPhone. It's still an iPhone. It's like the previous model, and yet it's all new. God announces he's doing something like this for his servants. It'll be a radically renewed and refreshed reality. Isaiah even picks up creation imagery from the first verse in the Bible. For God created the heavens and the earth. He uses it to describe this new thing that God is doing for his servants. It will be as all-encompassing and significant as when God first called the heavens and the earth into existence. The new thing that God is doing for his servants is beyond imagination, a new reality, a new way to exist, total newness, as radical as perhaps being born again. And this is why the former things will no longer be remembered by God's servants. They will rejoice forever in that which he is creating. The sorrow and painful recollections of yesteryear will dim and be supplanted by total renewal. Remembrance of war and destruction and exile will fade from memory, replaced by gladness and rejoicing forever. You know, I personally have never had a baby, believe it or not, but I bet you can relate with this illustration because we've probably all heard mothers say that as soon as you hold your newborn, precious, beautiful baby, all the swollen ankles, back pain, and painful contractions fade away. It all becomes worth it when you're holding this precious, beautiful little life. The former things dim and pass away as you have this new beautiful blessing in your presence. It was all worth it. The focus of this first part of our poem is all about what God is creating. Something similar to the old, but so radically different that the pain and sorrow of oppression, rejection, and exile are nothing in comparison. And God says, for the wicked I will destroy, but for my servants I create new creation. And the next thing God says in the poem is that this new creation is a new city for my joy rid of tears and death. For my servants, I create new creation, a new city for my joy, rid of tears and death. Picking up the second half of verse 18, God says this, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. 
For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Right before our eyes, this image of a new creation transforms into a picture of a new city, a new Jerusalem. Remember who this was first read by. It's those who had the experience of exile, those who had their capital city destroyed, those who had their land swallowed up by beastly Babylon. Since Jerusalem had become just another beastly city in the world, God enticed the great beast Babylon against her to destroy her. And so the last thing that God's people need is a Jerusalem rebuilt just as it was before. Because for generation after generation, century after century, Jerusalem forgot her God, rebelled continually against him. A Jerusalem like before will simply repeat history again. What we really need is a brand new city, a new Jerusalem. And this is what God says he's up to. You see, Isaiah here is picking up a major theme in Scripture. That is the tale of two cities. Jerusalem, at her best, becomes a symbol of the city of God. But at her worst, she's just another city of man in the world. Do you recall humanity's very first and earliest plan to establish their own security and stability in the world? It resulted in an evil city. You remember in Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel, it's the same root word as Babylon. I think the author's winking at us. Rebellious humanity wants to make a name for themselves. They want to take the heavens by force. And from that point forward, Babel, Babylon, becomes a symbol from Genesis to Revelation to describe every evil city of man. From Babylon to Egypt to Edom to Nineveh to Babylon and Rome and the wicked cities and kingdoms of our day. Beastly Babylons exalt themselves, they oppress others, all for their good at the expense of others. Jerusalem had become just another city of man, and so God humbled them to the ground. What Isaiah shows us is that through the suffering servant and for his servants, God is going to create the true city of God, a new Jerusalem that will be so radically new it will be nothing less than a new creation. And God says he creates this city, this Jerusalem, to be a joy. For who? For himself. He says that he creates Jerusalem to be a joy in her people, a gladness for himself. He will rejoice in the city. He will be glad in his people. God is doing this new thing for his servants, and it's going to bring him great joy and delight. Why? Because the power of death will be dead. There will be no more weeping and distress in the city. Why will the infant not fail to grow to maturity or the old man live out his days? Because death will be dead and life will reign. Death will have no more power for sin will be used up and exhausted by the suffering servant. Remembering that this is a poem and that poetry doesn't communicate through literal language but figurative language on just about every line, the point here is not about a literal hundred years old, but rather that this new city will be characterized by life rather than death. God will rejoice over this city, for in it there will be no more weeping, there will be no more distress, because over all of life, death will be dead. And so God describes this brand new thing that he's doing. So far, he's described this radically new thing that he's doing through suffering servant for his servants as something contrasted to the wicked. 
God says, but for my servants, I create new creation. A new city for my joy, rid of tears and death. Next, a new people, a new humanity of peace and presence. A new humanity of peace and presence. Verse 21 through 24, let's read it again. God says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. The shift and focus of the poem shifts again from a new creation to a new city and now to a new people. A brand new humanity that is so new and radically different that it has a whole new society because it's characterized by peace and God's presence. By peace and God's presence. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where someone takes credit for your hard work or something you did. Maybe it's a uh, classmate. Maybe it's a coworker. You put in all the work. You made it happen. You busted your behind to make it come about. And yet they stand next to you and receive the same credit or grade that you did. I don't know if you've had that experience. I have, and it's the worst. It brings me back to high school group projects. Very dark days, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but if we're being honest, this has nothing this is nothing in comparison to building a house and have others steal it and live in it. This is nothing in comparison to planting our crops, having our land stolen, and someone else enjoying its grapes. This describes most of human existence. It describes certainly Israel's existence at the time that this was written. First Assyria came and took the northern kingdoms. Then Babylon came, and it was Judea and Jerusalem. Even after exile, back in the land, Israel comes under the thumb of the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, and God says no more. The new humanity that he's creating will be characterized by peace and his presence. Isaiah uses the metaphor of a tree to describe this new humanity. You know why trees grow huge and majestic, right? because they stay planted in their home, sometimes for hundreds of years. Unlike the grass that's here today and gone tomorrow, this new people that God is creating, this new humanity will be rooted in their own homes, enjoying the toil and work of their own hands. There will be security, there will be safety, peace on every side. Now so far, what we've done in this section is we've looked at the obvious. But there's actually something much deeper going on in this section. Look at verse 23 again. It says, They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. If you know your Bible well, you might notice that this poetic verse is dripping with language from another part of Scripture. Where else is toilsome labor mentioned by the sweat of one's brow? Where else is painful childbearing mentioned? Where else is offspring mentioned, perhaps of a serpent and of a woman? Where else is the language of blessing and curse used in connection with all these others? Verse 23 is dripping with language from Genesis 3, where because of sin and rebellion, God curses the ground, he curses the serpent, he describes the consequences of sin, 
The woman will have pain in childbirth. The man will work the ground by the sweat of his brow before being ground back into the dust from which he came. God describes these consequences. There will be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. No longer will they be blessed. No longer will the earth be blessed but cursed as the world comes under the power of sin, death, and Satan. In our verse 23 in Isaiah, it describes the reversal of the curse, the reversal of the fall. There's no more toilsome labor, no more bearing children for calamity. They won't be considered the offspring of the serpent or the women, but the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring and descendants with them. All of this will result in a reversal of the worst part of Genesis 3, the loss of unity and fellowship with God. You recall Adam and Eve were exiled away from the presence of the Lord, but God says with this new humanity that he's creating through suffering servant, before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. You see, the picture here is of oneness and unity with God, so close to God that he anticipates their every need, so aligned with his will that as they speak, it will prompt immediate action from God. The new humanity that God is creating, his servants, which will be so through the suffering and great servant, not only be characterized by peace, but intimate oneness and unity with the presence of the Lord. God is doing this. God is doing something wonderfully new all through the suffering servant. So far, God has said, for the wicked I will destroy, but for my servants... I create new creation, a new city for my joy, rid of tears and death, a new humanity of peace and presence. Lastly, all of this, as already alluded to, will be Eden restored through Messiah. All of it will be Eden, the garden, restored through Messiah. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. There's a lot going on in this last stanza, but the key to understanding it is to recognize how Isaiah is using earlier scripture and he's referencing a couple passages. The first three lines, they pick up once again echoes from Genesis 3. Did you hear it? And dust shall be the serpent's food. These three lines pick up this language. They're, too, they're dripping with language from Genesis. Follow with me for just a moment. You remember that humanity was created in God's image to do what? To subdue the land and rule over all the creatures. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish, the birds, and every living creature on earth. But you turn the page and a creature, a serpent, is subverting the rule, usurping the authority that God gave the, his image bearers and enticing these human beings to rebel against their creator. And so God curses the serpent. In Genesis 3.14, he says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. In our Isaiah passage, the point here that he's making is the contrast between the first two beasts and the third, between the wolf and the lion and the serpent. 
Do you notice that the wolf and the lion are radically transformed in nature so that they're no longer a threat to God's servants? Instead of the wolf eating the lamb, it's going to eat grass with the lamb. Instead of the lion eating the ox, it's going to eat hay like an ox. But not so the serpent. The curse upon the serpent will never be lifted. Rather, he'll be subjected to humility forever. The point here is not about literal food for any of these beasts, but rather the curse being lifted from all creation, but not from the serpent or from sin. For God's servants, there will no longer be natural threats from things like beasts or natural disasters, but so too will there be no threat from sin or Satan. For the serpent will eat dust forever. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And this last little line is the last observation we need to make. This last little line that I just read is a quote from also an earlier passage. Isaiah's quoting himself verbatim. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 11, he already wrote about peace between animals and between human beings, concluding with the same line, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And the connection here is so, so important because in Isaiah 11, the radical peace and transformation is brought all about by a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots which will bear fruit. Now, if you don't know who Jesse is, he's King David's father. This branch that comes up from the roots brand new is a picture of a radically new David, a brand new messianic king who's going to rule by the spirit of God. He's going to judge with righteousness. He's going to decide equity for the meek and he'll strike the earth and the wicked within her. Isaiah quotes this earlier passage which reveals the radically transformed reality comes with the reign of a new David. Just as our passage tells us that all this newness comes with the death and vindication of a suffering servant. You see, Isaiah is keying his original audience into how this great transformation will begin, how all this newness will unfold. It happens with the arrival of Messiah, a suffering servant who will be a sacrifice for sin. It will be through his atoning sacrifice that this servant Messiah establishes God's new creation, his new city, a new humanity, Eden restored, and it's all through Messiah. And so again, in contrast to the wicked, God says he's going to destroy them. He says, but for my servants, I create new creation, a new city for my joy, rid of tears and death, a new humanity of peace and presence, Eden restored, all through Messiah. But for my servants, I create new creation, a new city for my joy, rid of tears and death, a new humanity of peace and presence, Eden restored all through Messiah. Now here's the fun part, perhaps the hard part too. How do you and I, sitting here on a Monday night in the 21st century, make sense of a poem like this? How is this word from the Lord given through the prophet Isaiah to God's people way back then, how is it helpful or relevant for us today? When is this poem even talking about? 
Well, first, we need to realize what this text is doing. We need to recognize what the function of this poem is. A poem, like all poetry, is primarily concerned with not giving the reader information, but rather engaging the reader's imagination. Not so much concerned with information, but imagination. It is making claims, but it's doing so through symbols and pictures and metaphors. Carried along by God's Spirit, Isaiah wrote this text to give God's people a new perspective on reality. To give them faith eyes to see behind the curtain, to see reality as it truly is. Just put yourself in the shoes of one of those few faithful Israelites. The few that were clinging on to these words in hope, clinging on to the God of Israel in hope. You're a descendant of the family of Abraham. You're part of the chosen family. You are the people of Yahweh, and yet your family history is stained by generations of rebellion and blood. The priesthood is corrupt. The monarchy is wicked. And there are a hundred false prophets for every one true prophet. And yet God made a promise. He promised that he would restore his blessing to all the families of the world through your family. And you still believe it. But again, what seems like for the millionth time, Israel's on a crash course towards destruction. And they're under the thumb of yet another beastly kingdoms and a long line of beastly kingdoms. The faithful Israelite might ask, what's going on, God? Will your promises ever come to fruition? Are you asleep Are you powerless to stop evil and save a people for yourself to partner with in ruling the world? Are you doing anything, God? And perhaps when you and I look out at our world at times, from our perspective, we might relate with this ancient, faithful Israelite. But this is because we don't have the right perspective at times. We don't have God's perspective, and we can't have God's perspective, that is, unless he gives it to us. And that's what Isaiah is doing. That's the purpose of our text. At different times and in many places throughout history, history, God has pulled back the curtains. He's revealed reality as it really is. And in these revelations in Scripture, a person is always brought into the throne room of God. Between the heavens and the earth to grant them a radically new perspective. You remember Moses and the elders of Israel had this experience. You remember Daniel was transported before the throne in a dream and it gave him a new perspective on the circumstances of his day. Well, Isaiah too had this experience. In chapter 6, he was brought before the throne room of God. And it gave him eyes to see reality as it really is. And he wrote all of this with this new perspective for his audience of his day. God doesn't want his people to be blind. And so he invites them to see from his perspective. Isaiah is giving his readers a radically different perspective to see that God is triumphing over the beastly kingdoms of the world. God is judging evil and God is sovereignly bending eternity towards his purpose and plan. God is revealing to those who had eyes to see, those who had ears to hear in Isaiah's day, that despite what may appear to the contrary, for his servants, God will create new creation, a new city for a new humanity, and restore Eden all through the Jewish Messiah. This was Israel's purpose. And Isaiah gives God's servants eyes to see that God is not failing to achieve it. 
And friends, we need God's perspective too. In our chapter, in the story that God is telling in history, Messiah has come. Jesus is the new David. He is the branch from the roots of Jesse. He is the suffering servant. And through his atoning sacrifice, he has established God's reign on earth. If anyone is in new Christ, is in Christ, they are a new creation. Those who follow Jesus are a city on a hill, citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem already. Through faith in Jesus, we're a new humanity. The old is gone. The new has come. This is the promise given to us if we are in Christ in the Bible, and yet we desperately need God's perspective to see it. We need faith eyes. We need to see reality as it really is. Because sometimes from our perspective, when we look out at the world, it seems like Babylon is still reigning unchecked. Sometimes it seems like evil is still sitting on the throne. And without God's perspective, we can't see that God is doing a new thing for his servants right now. Without God's perspective, we might conclude that God is powerless to stop evil. But friends, we live in the overlap of the ages. The future has arrived now in Jesus. The end has already broken into the present. In this overlap of the ages, while the old age is still passing away, we need God's perspective. We need faith eyes if we're going to see what God is really up to. And I think this is why Jesus, through John, gives us the revelation. The final book in our Bible functions in many of the same way as Isaiah did back in his day. Because you remember John 2 had a throne room experience, and it radically changed his perspective. And it must change ours as well. Because we know what he saw. He saw the slain lamb sitting on the throne, ruling over all creation, unrolling God's plan for history. He, we saw the judgment and wrath being poured out on evil in every generation. We saw the saints of the Most High sitting on thrones and Babylon the beast being taken down to the ground. This is why the Apostle John picks up every major theme that's in the prophet Isaiah and alludes to it many, many times in just about every chapter. And do you remember how the revelation ends in the last two chapters? Do you remember how it ends? When Jesus returns again, a new heavens and new earth descends, like a new Jerusalem, it's described, where God dwells with his people in this city forever. And a river flows from her out into all the earth, and it restores a garden of Eden over the whole planet, where the tree of life bears crops for all the nations in proper time. And here's the last thing that is said about God's people in the Revelation. And his servants, similar language as Isaiah, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Dear friends, the future has arrived now. The end of the story has broken into the present when the suffering servant Messiah arrived on earth. And in this already not yet awkward time where we reside, during the overlap of the ages, we need to see reality as it really is. And we do this through faith eyes. 
We need to be given God's perspective. We need to see by faith. And yet, one day Messiah will return and we will no longer see by faith, but the Bible says we will see by sight. When evil, sin, and death are quarantined forever, the servants of the Most High God will shine like the sun and we will see him face to face. We will worship him as his partners ruling over creation, reigning with him forever and ever. And so... With John, I say, come, Lord Jesus, come. May that be our prayer. Let me pray. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that for each one of us, you would give us faith eyes, that you would give us a radically new perspective to see what you are doing in this world, that you are doing it through your Messiah, through us, that you're doing something brand new. Father, may we have our minds and our view and our perspective radically transformed that we might see and be in line with what you are up to. Father, we are so grateful that you give us this perspective in your word. God, may we live in light of reality, the reality that is true, the reality that we can see through your word. And yet, Father, we pray, we ask for the speedy return of our Messiah when all that we can see by faith will be seen by sight. And we will reign with him forever and ever in a new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, new humanity in the Garden of Eden once again. Father, you are so good and kind and gracious and we're reminded of your sovereign power over everything tonight. And we trust that you are bending eternity to your plan and your purpose for everything. God, you are good and we love you and we pray this all in the name of our Messiah, Jesus, amen.